0: Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are very excited to bring you the news this week. Derek, let's just jump right in and talk about what the Israeli Supreme Court is doing with relation to Netanyahu and his interior minister.
1: So the court Uh, ruled this week that Benjamin Netanyahu has to remove his uh, minister of the interior, who also is minister of health, Arya Derry, who's the leader of the Shas party. This is because uh, Derry was convicted last year. He pled guilty, actually, to to tax evasion. He was not sentenced to prison time. This is a a salient point because the uh, Israeli legislature passed a law last month specifically to clear the way for Derry to serve in the cabinet that said Uh, If you've been convicted of a crime but only been ordered to pay a fine, you don't have to, you you can still serve in the cabinet. It's only if you get a custodial sentence, jail or prison time, that 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 would disqualify you. However, uh, it turns out, according to the court at least, that Derry basically accepted uh, a prohibition on serving in politics for at least seven years as part of his agreement with prosecutors to not send him to prison and only fine him. So they've really done like a total end run around the system here. He sort of promised one thing and then did something else. Uh, So they've now ordered Netanyahu to can him. I don't yet know uh, how Netanyahu or Derry intend to respond. I don't think they've said anything, but the indication, there is an indication, uh, at least from a couple of media outlets, that they're just going to ignore the court ruling. Netanyahu's in a little bit of a bind here because he's promised to, he's made promises to the US uh, that he would rein in guys like Derry and sort of this very far right cabinet that he's built. One of their big causes has been to defang the Supreme Court, to strip it of most of its power, uh, and basically, you know, uh, let them do what they like, largely in respect to the Palestinians, but in some other areas as well. And so, you know, on the one hand, he's made promises to the U.S. that he would kind of limit the extent to which this happened. On the other hand, Derry ha- and, and Shas control eleven seats in the, the the parliament, so they can't. He can't actually do without them. Uh, if if Derry were to say, "Well, fine, if you're going to fire me, I'm going to take my whole party out of the coalition," that would break the coalition. They'd have to go to a new vote. Um, uh, so Netanyahu's in a bit of a bind. Derry, you know, the, he could maybe be pressured to resign as long as his party remains in the cabinet. I don't know. He doesn't seem, uh, so far at least he hasn't, you know, got out of his way to resign or anything like that. Um, uh, so yeah, this is a, a bit of a conundrum. I assume, uh, if Netanyahu ignores the court ruling that is going to trigger uh, a much deeper constitutional crisis than, than Israel may already be in. Uh, So that that should be
0: fun. Those are always uh, a good time. And let's stick on Israel for a second, because it it seems that Israel has averaged a killing of one Palestinian a day in the West Bank. Is is that accurate? What does that suggest? Uh, They're
1: close to that. Um, There were two more Palestinians killed on Thursday in some sort of operation in the West Bank by Israeli forces, they've killed 17 people in the West Bank so far in 2023, in, in 19 days. To For reference, last year was the deadliest year since people have, have kept track of these sorts of things, uh, four Palestinians in the West Bank, and uh, that meant almost 150 Palestinians were killed by Israelis for the entire year. Uh, that's according to Betzalel, the the Israeli Rights Group, and you know we're we're on pace. It's early, obviously, but we're on pace to uh, to exceed that by quite a bit.
0: It sounds like, uh, if if things keep going the way they are, do you think this suggests something new about Israeli governance in the occupied territories, or is this just a particularly bad year? What do you think this means? I think
1: it absolutely suggests changes in governance. I mean, some of the things that Netanyahu has done, uh, he's put some very far right people, Itamar Ben Gavir, uh, Smoltrich, his, his, uh, ostensibly finance minister was given a, a, uh, Bezalel Smoltrich, who was given a specific remit as part of the finance ministry. They moved like, uh, an office, the office that, that controls West Bank security. To the finance ministry or, or just basically put it under his personal control, um, as, as part of the negotiations over the, the coalition. Ben Gavir has been given this brand new ministry for national security, which apparently includes the occupied territories. Um, you know, I think that, that there, there's a, probably a, a few things going on here. One, they may be making some changes about the rules of engagement. I don't know whether that's true or not yet uh but the other thing i think is is israeli forces in the west bank uh, are i would say under this leadership likely to feel a sense of impunity that goes beyond even what they felt under previous governments uh so when it comes to you know shooting first and asking questions later there's probably more latitude uh, or at least they feel like there's more latitude to do that so uh, i do think there there's some changes happening here not in a good way obviously So yeah,
0: it'll be something to watch for the rest of the year. So let's move over to China, where China has actually experienced its first population decline since 1961. Uh, Yes, that's correct. The official
1: Chinese figures, uh, population figures, uh, at the end of last year stood at 1,411,750,000 give or take obviously that's a somewhat of an estimate uh that's a de- decrease of about 850,000 people uh year over year compared to the end of 2021 uh this is the first time the chinese population has declined annually uh since 1961 uh this is something that demographic trends have suggested was uh, on its way or has been on its way for some time and it's going to be the first of probably many population declines the u.n forecasts have the chinese population shrinking by more than a mil- hundred million people uh, by 2050 um, india is either is already or will soon be uh, overtaking china as the most populous nation on earth Uh, And there are some concerns here. There are economic concerns uh, uh, about the effect that a sort of uh, aging and shrinking population is going to have on China's ability to sustain its uh, economic growth, uh, which, of course, China being one of the pillars of the global economy has ripple effects you know, far outside China. Uh, the Chinese government has been trying, you know, it repealed the the One China, One Child policy several years ago. Uh, it's been trying to, to do things to encourage higher birth rates, but it just, uh, none of them seem to have taken. Uh, and, you know, there are various theories why cost of living or, you know, people just got comfortable not having big families. And that's sort of the uh, the norm now. It's, it's not clear what specifically is happening here. But there are, Uh, some concerns from an economic perspective about what this could mean moving forward.
0: Does this suggest anything about the nature of the Chinese state or society, or is this being understood within China or elsewhere as a consequence of quote-unquote modernization and what happens to D- developed quote-unquote societies
1: um i mean i think there's there may be some of that i mean i'm not obviously not an expert on on uh, the goings-on inside china but there, i mean the government chinese government has made some moves in recent years not specifically in this area as i say they've, they've actually tried to encourage higher birth rates but in other areas there have been uh it seems like a, a recognition that the economy has to evolve. It has to get, you know, away from just purely kind of raw manufacturing and move to a more service based or, or finance based, uh, economy, or that's the sort of the, the natural evolution of things. And so there's been preparation for things like lower growth rates and, and, you know, more kind of, uh, stable, uh, kind of economic situation. Um, so I do think there's some recognition on the part of, of the Chinese government that um, there's a, I, I don't know if you want to call it modernization, but there's a, there is a shift happening here. Uh, but, but again, I don't, I don't think this is something that they're particularly sanguine about. They, they have been, uh, this has been a message the Chinese government has pushed for a while that, that, uh, you know, people should feel free to have bigger families. It's just, uh, again, I think it's an outgrowth of of you know having the one child policy for so long. Uh, this became a, a cultural norm in a sense, or a societal norm, uh, and this is just how people live now. And it, it, you know, it may you may be able to change uh, change that moving you know in a, on a long time frame, but in the short term, I don't uh, I don't know that there's much you can
0: do. Thank you, Derek. Let's move over to New Zealand and talk about um. Jacinda, Yacinda Arden's resignation. Yeah, Jacinda. I, I,
1: I, it, this was, uh, uh, I think, a total surprise to pretty much everybody. She uh, announced on uh, Thursday morning that she's resigning. Uh, she's resigning uh, by February 7th. She's and we have an her, exciting annou- annou- announcement
0: <laughs> to make. <laughs> third mic is open. <laughs> no, third mic is filled. Sorry, Nick Kristoff. Yeah, but officially this is, filled, yeah. Yeah, Sorry, Derek. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah.
1: I mean, I don't, as far as I know, uh, there's nothing kind of seedy going on behind the scenes. She said uh, in announcing her resignation, she just didn't feel like she had it in her to, to serve another term as prime minister. And of course, New Zealand is going to an election, a general election in October. Polling suggested that she might not actually have to worry about serving another term, uh, Another term, but, but that's a, a whole different story. She said, "I mean, she just felt said she felt like she didn't have it in her, and, and so the responsible thing to do would be to step down now, give the Labor Party a chance to to elect a new leader, and have that leader take the party into the to the election in October. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's all I've seen. I mean, there's been this sort of uh, outpouring of platitudes from leaders around the world, kind of praising her, and uh, you know, she did get a lot of." credit for New Zealand's response to COVID, uh, which was probably better than the norm. Uh, that said, as I, as I uh, alluded to, uh, the National Party, the Conservative National Party, which is uh, in a partnership with the uh, more conservative, far-right, almost, uh, ACT New Zealand Party, polling suggests that those two parties combined could be in a position to win a majority in October, which would unseat the Labour government anyway. Ardern still polls as the Number one choice for, for New Zealanders. But even that figure uh, has fallen when you put her in sort of a, a polling scenarios with leaders of other parties. Uh, who do you want to be your prime minister? She still comes out ahead, but uh, she, I think her the last uh, survey put her at like the choice of 29%, which was a, a, a low for her. So, you know, the blue may have been off the rose a little bit anyway. Uh, but this is certainly a surprise. I don't think anybody expected
0: this announcement. Uh, and we'll update you regularly on our New Zealand hour. And let's move over to <laughs> Ethiopia and Derek, you can let us know what's going on with the implementation of the new peace deal. Yeah, this is just a brief
1: update. I, I don't I, I can't remember if we talked last week. I mean, I think we talked about uh, the Tigray People's Liberation Front and started handing over its heavy weapons. There was a report. Uh, and I can't remember if we mentioned this last week or not. It may have come out after we did the news. But there was a report that special forces from the Amhara region had begun withdrawing from n- at least northern Tigray. There's still Amharan forces occupying uh, other parts of what is considered to be Tigray, especially in the west. Uh, but there was a report that they had started withdrawing, or they had withdrawn, I should say, not started withdrawing, uh, from northern Tigray. And this may have been connected to the TPLF's willingness to start giving up its heavy weaponry, uh, Reuters uh, ran a report on Friday. So this was definitely after we, we did the news, uh, suggesting, uh, according to local witnesses, I think there was a humanitarian worker they didn't give a name, obviously, but uh, that Amharan forces are not have not withdrawn or had not withdrawn at that point. We're still there. Uh, it's possible that they were in the process of withdrawing but as i say the the report as uh as it was made uh, on thursday was that they were gone they had already left and then a day later you get this kind of eyewitness claim that they had not in fact left that they were still there uh so this is i mean this is potentially serious um you know these this peace deal has been long delayed uh they've missed deadlines for disarmament and and some other key milestones, uh, largely because I think of the presence, the continued presence of the Amharan forces uh, and forces from Eritrea, and I still haven't seen anything about uh, their disposition, but these sort of third party in the sense that they're not Ethiopian federal forces and they're not Tigrayan fighters, uh, but these third parties that are still occupying parts of Tigray. Uh, seem to be complicating the implementation of the peace deal. So, uh, again, something to uh, to sort of watch here. Let's do a Ukraine update, Derek. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of things. Territorially, the the Russian government finally agreed on Friday with the assessment of the Wagner Group uh, that their forces had seized the town of Solodar, which is in uh, Donetsk, Oblast in eastern Ukraine, uh, not far from the city of Bakhmut. Uh, I haven't seen any uh, indication of further territorial advance since then. Uh, Bakhmut seems like the next logical target for the Russians or for Wagner, which is sort of the point, uh, running point on this part of the, the war. But I haven't seen any indication that they've moved any closer uh, to Bakhmut. Uh, I'm sure that's that's in the cards. Uh, there was a missile strike uh, on Saturday uh, in the city of Dnipro that killed uh, I think 45 people at last count. I'm not sure if they're still sifting through the rubble, if there's a possibility that figure could go up. It was, I mean, clearly a, a Russian missile strike. I've seen speculation that maybe the Ukrainians shot the missile down. Uh, I don't know how much uh, credence to give that. I wouldn't give it very much, probably. Um, you know, the Russians have been bombarding civilian infrastructure pretty steadily over the last several months, and, uh you know, it, it, it does not come as a surprise that they're occasionally hitting, uh, things like apartment complexes, which is what was, uh, struck in Dnipro. Uh, the big thing that's been going on this week is there have been, uh, there's been a real strong push, uh, demand on the part of the Ukrainians, uh, a push by, uh, governments, especially in Eastern Europe to provide the Ukrainians with heavier armor and specifically with main battle tanks. Uh, now, the U.S., the U.K., uh, Germany, France have all offered things like armored troop transports and light tanks and, and sort of uh, degrees of armored vehicle that are shy, just shy of uh, sort of the main battle tank level. But the Ukrainians really want tanks. They they say they need them to, uh, you know, fend off a potential Russian offensive and maybe to, mount a new offensive of their own. Uh, The dam started to break a little bit this week. The U.K. has pledged to supply Ukraine with a number of Challenger 2 main battle tanks. They're the first, uh, I would say, let's say large Western government to make that pledge. Uh, The U.S. and France are still holding out. There's a lot of pressure that's being put on Germany, uh, which manufactures a a tank called the Leopard 2. Now, the Leopard 2 is, is... Very popular in Europe. A number of European militaries use it for logistical reasons. Uh, If you want to get tanks into Ukraine as quickly as possible and get Ukrainian soldiers trained up to use them as quickly as possible, this is probably the most expedient option. The Germans have been resisting, uh, not only sending uh, their own Leopard 2 battle tanks, but but uh, agreeing... Uh, to allow other countries to export their Leopard 2s to Ukraine. And I mean, this, this is, you know, Poland, Finland uh, have talked about this, but, but the German government maintains, as most kind of arms dealers do, they, they maintain a sort of export control uh, on the, uh, over the, the right of purchasers to, to you know, kind of send them on to uh, other countries. So there's been pressure on the Germans to at least allow uh, the poles and the Finns to to make these uh, transactions. Uh, I the, there was a report in Reuters uh, earlier this week, I, I believe on Wednesday, uh, suggesting that the Germans were willing to do this, provided that the Biden administration offered uh, U.S. battle tanks, the M1 Abrams, to Ukraine. Now, the uh, U.S. has been. Uh, resisting that, uh, they're offering, they're supposedly this week about to uh, unveil another like $2.2 2 or $2.5 billion weapons package where they'll offer another class of armored vehicle called the Striker. Uh, but they are continuing to resist sending Abrams tanks. So that's a, uh, a, a potential handcuffing here. Uh, that said, the Polish government has indicated, uh, just I think on Thursday, that it could send its leopards to Ukraine, even if the Germans don't greenlight it, they would just do it anyway, uh, which on some level, yeah, I mean, what is the German government actually going to do here? Probably nothing. Uh, so that is a possibility. Uh, there was a meeting in Germany, uh, there's actually, it's actually going on today, and I believe tomorrow, uh, involving what's called the Ukraine Support Group, which is a, a coalition of a large number of countries that have been sending weapons and other support to ukraine during the war and out of that uh, this is just being was just reported a little bit before we recorded this a, a, there's a group of nine countries that includes britain poland and the netherlands uh, along with uh, latvia lithuania estonia uh, the czech republic uh, slovakia denmark they they've all issued a statement saying that they're a group they they've Decided to collaborate uh, on kind of injecting uh, as many new and more advanced weapons into Ukraine as they can as quickly as possible. So that that probably means tanks. It certainly means uh, more artillery, air defenses. Uh, so this is a potentially interesting development. I don't know how what the capacity of a lot of these countries is to actually uh, support the Ukrainian war effort, but it is a uh, you, know, you know something that, uh, as I say, just kind of came across the wire here.
0: So let's stay in the general region. And uh, Derek, could you give an update on uh, Sweden and Finland's attempts to join NATO? So,
1: yeah, this is uh, over the weekend on Saturday. uh, The spokesperson for the Turkish government, Ibrahim Kalin, uh, suggested that time was running out for a speedy kind of accession to Sweden and Finland. Uh, and their applications to join NATO. Now, Turkey, all the other NATO countries, except for Turkey and Hungary, uh, have already agreed to, have already approved their admission into NATO, but it has to be unanimous. Uh, Hungary seems like it's waiting, the Hungarian government seems like it's waiting to see what Turkey does uh, before it makes any commitments. Uh, The Turkish government has, of course, as we've talked many times now on on, on this uh, show, uh, has been demanding concessions from Sweden and Finland, primarily Sweden, uh, with respect to uh, the status of uh, Turkish nationals who are in Sweden now, who may be members of the Kurdistan Workers Party, uh, or the PKK, or maybe members of the Fetullah Gulen organization. These various outlawed uh, groups that that the Turkish government, you know, would like to. Uh, prosecute basically. They're they're one of the main demands they've been making is uh, they want a lot of these people extradited to Turkey to stand trial. The Swedish government has resisted on that point, particularly insisting that uh, you know these things have to go through the courts and the courts aren't inclined necessarily to send these people back to Turkey to face prosecution. So Colin on Saturday made this statement that uh, you know we uh, it, it may not be until much later this year, at least uh, June or later, uh, before the Turkish parliament can actually take up this issue. uh, He cited uh, the June 18th general election in Turkey as an obstacle uh, to getting things done earlier, which is a fair point. I mean, parliament adjourns a month before uh, so everybody can go campaign. It's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on that, that could make taking up this issue complicated. But what he really was trying to do is, is pressure Sweden and Finland to just kind of uh, cave in on all these points and acquiesce to what Turkey wants uh, as quickly as possible. And then, you know, the the understanding, I guess, would be that, that the Turks would turn around and hold a vote uh, in fairly short order. Uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkey, uh, then on, uh, I believe, Monday, was... He said it on Sunday, excuse me, it was reported on Monday. Like he he demanded that uh, Sweden and Finland export, he said, around 130 uh, terrorists. That's Turkey's catch-all term for anybody that's sort of opposed to the Turkish government. I don't know where he got that figure from. I think he was basically just off the top of his head, uh, like pulled a number out of thin air. They're certainly not going to get 130 people extradited to Turkey in the next six months uh, so if that's his demand, then uh, I think this process is not going to move forward. Uh, Erdogan does have a habit of kind of saying things <laughs> that maybe don't necessarily mean anything, or or you know speaking in the heat of the moment. Uh, so who knows? But but the way where things stand right now, it's it's sort of kind of stuck, frozen in place. I think for for both uh, Sweden and Finland.
0: And let's do uh, a quick end with the protests in Peru. Uh, yes, there are
1: ongoing protests, especially in southern Peru. Uh, there continues to be uh, there continue to be reports of violence. Uh, I believe on Wednesday, two more people were killed in the Puno region in southern Peru. Uh, these are, you know, these folks are continuing to protest over the uh, removal of former President Pedro Castillo from office last month and his arrest. They're demanding his release. They're demanding constitutional. A uh, referendum or constitutional reform process, and they're demanding that the current government uh, resign and and go to elections, a uh, general election uh, ASAP. Uh, so those are continuing. Uh, I haven't seen many developments apart from the fact that the, you know these two people were killed on Wednesday. So there is still uh, you know some violence uh, happening here on the part of security forces. There's supposed to be. Uh, a major demonstration in Lima, uh, You know, I, I'm not sure if it's supposed to happen today uh, or over the weekend, but people have been apparently gathering in Lima, uh, many of them coming from southern Peru. Uh, the Peruvian government has extended its state of emergency in Lima and in the south uh, in sort of preparation for uh, major demonstrations. So uh, that's something to look out for. The protests in Lima have been relatively calmer than the ones in the south, but... but you know, anything could, uh, all it takes is is one bad night to sort of break things open into a,
0: uh, a really dangerous situation. Derek, as always, thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Please like, subscribe, share everything. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.